I've always wanted to sound like James Earl Jones. We want to get you ready for at the movies a little bit. And I've always had a dream that my voice would be as full and as rich and as large as James Earl Jones. But that, that clip, if you remember, comes from the best children's movie ever made, the movie Lion King. And uh, a couple weeks ago, my wife and I were uh, discipling our children in the ways of the Lord, and we're teaching them about these movies. And so we, uh, we introduced them to the Lion King. They were a little bit scared, and uh, we had to explain to them that... Uh, you know, lions do not come back to life and talk to each other. Uh, but there is this scene in the movie, The Lion King, if you remember it, where Mufasa comes back and he speaks to his son Simba. And the message is simple. It's one word. Remember. Because somewhere along the way, life did not go the way that Simba planned. Many of you can relate. Life has not gone the way that you planned. And when life doesn't go the way that you plan, the very normal and natural thing is to lose sight of what is truly important, to lose sight of who you truly are. And when you've lost sight of who you are, when you've lost sight of what's important, when you've forgotten what you should have always known, the secret is to remember. Now, the the secret behind the word remember is that it's actually the the construction of two words. It literally means to remember, to reassemble broken and separate pieces into a whole. And so when you remember something, you're actually putting together a giant jigsaw puzzle. You're reassembling what was broken and lost in your mind and making something that was broken whole. If it was whole, you wouldn't need to remember it. You would have already had it. And so when you remember something, you're in essence reassembling something so that it's actually whole again, so that it actually can be useful again. But I have a hunch that many of you are like me in the fact that you have a mixed feeling about remembering. For many of us, remembering and memories are mixed bags. There's things we love to remember, And there are things that we wish we could forget. There are things that we love to look back on with nostalgia and wonder. They're the good old days. And then there are those memories that no amount of bleach and scrubbing can remove from our minds. And that's why for me, I have a love-hate relationship with this app called TimeHop. If you have this app on your phone, what it does is it amalgamates and aggregates all of your social media posts ever, which is a good point and time to remind you that everything you post on social media can never go away. It's a tattoo. So before you post, just be okay with it always being out there forever. Okay, moving on from that point. Um... What it does is every day when you open TimeHop, it gives you by year all of your photos, if you connect your photos to it, and all of your posts on all of your social media channels. So today I opened up my my TimeHop this morning. It's one of the first things I do every day. And I opened it up, and I saw everything from July 29th, 2017, and then 2016, and then 2014, and then 2012, and then 2006. I'm going back to 2005 today. All of the memories. And some of them are really good. Like, my kids are getting old enough now where I can remember them when they were littler, and so it's nostalgic to go, oh, you were so small and so tiny and so cute, and you didn't talk back, and you didn't know what no was, and, and so I look back on that, and, and there, there are fun moments like that. There are other moments where I open it up and I go, I said that? 
That was stupid. Like, why did I say that? And then there are other places where it's like, oh, like a couple of days ago, it brought a picture up of somebody that I don't ever want to see again. Like, we used to be friends, and we're not friends anymore. And I'm not sure I wanted to remember that person. And so for some of you, today is going to be a challenge because remembering is a mixed bag for you. But the, the stance that we're taking on remembering isn't I'm just ask, going to ask you today to, to dredge up every bad memory from your life. What we're going to do today is talk about remembering when it comes to our relationship with God. And so if you have a handout like this, it's in your bulletin, I'd encourage you to pull it out. I finished this big idea after the thing went to print, so you're going to have to write a little bit more than normal today. And the big idea is this, that remembering what God has done in the past keeps us hopeful in the present. Remembering what God has done in the past keeps us hopeful in the present. And I don't know about you, but I have a hard time staying hopeful. Sometimes it just takes a minute of scrolling on Twitter and I'm depressed. But if you're going to remain hopeful in the present, one of the things that you can do is to remember who God is and what God has done in the past. And then bring that into your present situation and allow that to inform the present with hope. Now today we're wrapping up a series we've been in for the whole summer called And, Living Faithful to Christ and Winston to Culture. We've been in two books, the book of Daniel and Esther. And I've been on vacation the last two weeks and Josh and Tom did a great job wrapping up the section of Daniel we're covering. Today we're going to wrap up the story of Esther. So if you have a Bible, open up to Esther chapter 9. If you've got a digital Bible, open, turn that on, scroll down, you'll find Esther eventually. If you have a physical Bible, open up to the middle, you'll hit Psalms and go toward Towards the front, and you'll go Psalms, Job, and then Esther. If you are kind of catching this series at the tail end and you don't know the story of Esther, it's really fascinating. Esther and her uncle Mordecai are living in captivity in Persia. No one knows they're Jews, and yet they ultimately, at a certain point in the story, claim their identity as Jews, as worshipers of God, and they experience God in an amazing, amazing way. And at the end of the book, the the book ends with the inauguration of a celebration or party to remember who God is and what God has done. And I'm going to ask you guys to run through the scriptures here so I can just read it out of my physical Bible. That's okay. So beginning in verse 20 of Esther 9, here's what we read. It says, and Mordecai recorded these things, like all the events that happened in Esther that we've already covered in this series. And he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and the 15th day of the same year by year. It's an annual festival. As the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as the month that it turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. I just got back from vacation. We were in, in uh, British Columbia. And I love how they call it holiday, you know? Like, where are you? I'm, I'm on a holiday. You know, it just sounds more fun than vacation. So I just came back from holiday. That has nothing to do with this. I'm just a little bit distracted this morning. They turned mourning into a holiday that they should make for themselves days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is to cast lots, to crush and destroy them. 
But when it come before the king, he gave orders in writing that this evil plan he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head. We covered that on July 8th, if you want to go back and watch that sermon on our website. That he and his sons, Haman, should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days, this festival, Purim, after the term pure. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail, they would keep these two days according to what was written and at that time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every clan, province, and city that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Purim, that's what we're talking about today. And Purim was an annual celebration that took the two days that Haman had plotted, these are the days that we're going to kill all the Jews, which had turned into the days that God protected all the Jews, and those were going to be the two days that every year they celebrated. And remembered, this is what God did. At the end of a season... Where God seemed completely absent, God showed up and showed us that he was present all along. Now, some of you can relate to this because you're either in a season or coming out of a season where God seemed completely absent. Or maybe you can remember a season in your life where you felt like God was completely absent. And then God showed up and he looked back because hindsight is twenty twenty, and you said, oh my gosh, God has been here all along. God has been at work all along. I just didn't see it. And so Purim was that celebration. And there's lots of things written about Purim. We don't know for sure everything that happened, but we do know for sure three parts that I'm going to talk to you about today. The first part of Purim that would be celebrated is they would begin by reading from the book of Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book in the Bible. Most of you haven't read it because you started reading the Bible in Genesis and you got stuck in Leviticus and Numbers and you never got to Deuteronomy. But in Deuteronomy, God speaks to the people and he tells them to remember the Amalekites who attacked them from the rear. And many people believe that the Amalekites were the ancestors of Haman, the bad guy in the story. And so the story begins with Haman's family. The second thing we know about Purim is that they would read the entire book of Esther in its entirety. That's kind of a long read. Well, what they would do, though, to make it fun is that when they read the book of Esther... Every time they said the name Haman, who's the bad guy in the story, everyone in the, in the group would boo, would hiss, would jeer. So if you can pretend for a second that you're like a Red Sox fan at a Yankees game, or you're a U of A fan at ASU for the Territorial Cup, or you're at somebody's house who watches Fox News and you watch MSNBC and you're hissing at the TV, however it is for you, What we're going to do this morning, because we have kids in the room and I want no one to fall asleep today, is that we are going to engage this story. And so every time I say the word Haman, okay, that's about halfway there. I want you to really get into it because I said, this is this day that it's okay to be loud and rambunctious in church, okay? So I'm going to tell you the story of what happens in the book of Esther. And whenever you hear that name that I'm not going to say... You're going to boo and hiss and do all those things. Okay, so here we go. So Esther and Mordecai are in Persia. They're compromised. You're going before, just calm down for a second. (laughs) Esther and Mordecai are in Persia. They're compromised. No one knows they're Jews. Queen Vashti says no to the king and she's banished. 
There's a dark, very mean contest that happens that makes Esther the queen. Mordecai saves the king's life. And then Mordecai decides that he has to stand up and be a Jew because there's a man who's become the second most powerful man in the kingdom, a man named Haman. Yes! I love you so much. Well, Mordecai refused to bow down to this guy, and so all the Jews are going to be killed. And so a plot is hatched to kill all the Jews. And so Mordecai goes to Queen Esther and says, you have to do something. The king learns of this plot, plotted by the evil Haman. Oh man, you brought your A-game to church today. I love it. And the king decides that the gallows that were built for Mordecai to hang on, Haman hangs on. And in the end, God provides for and protects for his people. Yeah, there we go. You can give yourself a round of applause. The third thing we know for sure about, about Purim is that they would celebrate by eating these pastries that were triangular in shape, and they had fruit hidden inside. So I'm kind of imagining like a fruit turnover or a croissant, and that was a symbol of the fact that you didn't know the fruit was inside. It was hidden in the same way that you didn't know God was inside the book of Esther because God's name is not mentioned in the book of Esther. Not one time do you hear God's name. And so they would celebrate this time these two days every year to remember. Now, I'm not telling you to go find where Purim is on the calendar and begin celebrating those two years, but I think there are some things that we can learn from Purim. And that's what I want to talk about today. And there's a place on your hand up to fill these out. The first thing I think we can learn from Purim is that we need to remember who God is and what God has done. We need to remember who God is and what God has done. As humans, we have this natural habit of building memorials when we're worried that we're going to forget something. For example, there's a memorial in Washington, D.C. called the, the, the Memorial to the Battle of Iwo Jima, a significant battle in World War II in the Pacific to remember the lives of the men who sacrificed themselves on our behalf. There's also a, a memorial at the Arlington National Cemetery called the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, and it's one person who's unknown, but it symbolizes the many who've lost their lives who are unknown, that we would never forget their sacrifice. And so if those things are significant to remember, then how much more is it significant to remember who God is and what God has done? This is one of the reasons why we're constantly reminding here at the church that you need to come to the place where you own and know your own story. When you look back on your past and go, this is my story. This is how I came to faith. This is how God has been faithful to me. And so often Christians, and I, I, I'm going to be as gentle as I can in saying this, we are stupid in telling ourselves that we buy bad testimonies. Because we grew up in a Christian home and nothing really bad happened in our life before we met Jesus. When the truth is, many of the best testimonies involve who God is and what God did after you met Jesus. Not before. Some of you have incredible testimonies that you've been following Jesus for 40 years and then the wheels fell off your life. You've been following Jesus for 40 years. Some of you have been following Jesus for 30 years and then you finally realized what grace was when you face planted. And you had to learn that Jesus didn't just forgive you of your sins in the past, he was forgiving you of your sins in the present. You know, there's two really big obstacles to remembering in our culture. And the first one is busyness. Many of us are just incredibly busy. 
And business isn't a season that we're in. It's the pervasive habit of our lives. Across Eastern Africa, there's a language that's spoken called Swahili. And in Swahili, there's a word called Mzungu. And the word Mzungu means one who spins around, someone who is constantly on the move, who wanders without purpose. And it sums up that busyness well. The interesting thing is, is that people who speak Swahili, they use the word Mzungu to talk about white people. So if you're white and you go to Eastern Africa, they're going to call you Mzungu. Because you're spinning around, constantly on the move, and wandering without purpose. And before you make fun of somebody who's wandering around on their cell phone, walking into light poles and falling off the curb, busyness has been a human problem before there were smartphones. And they were calling white people Mzungu long before there was Apple or AT&T or Microsoft or Samsung. See, we've bought into the lie in our culture that busyness is a badge of honor when it should, in fact, be a warning sign. And it's fine when you have a busy season. I get it. Here at the church, we're in a busy season right now, getting ready for at the movies. We're going to be in a busy season again, getting ready for Christmas and then for Easter. But I tell our team, if busyness moves from a season to a way of life, there is something wrong. And if the way we interact with one another is, how are you doing? And the first word is busy. Something is wrong. Because busyness is not a state of a human condition. How's my soul? It's busy. That's not a good thing for the human soul to be busy. Because busyness erodes memory. And if you want to remember who God is, you want to maintain sight of who God is and what he's done, then busyness is going to work against you and not for you. That's why these two days, they stopped long enough to remember. The other obstacle to memory is what my friend Leanna Tankersley calls soul bullies. Many of you have soul bullies and they're the memories in the past you wish you could change. You look in the past and there is regret. There's a voice of guilt and shame that constantly plays in your head and it beats you up like a bully whenever you remember the past. For some of you, the, the, the worst enemy you have is the voice in your head. That every day tells you who you are and who you're not, what you're never going to be. Not the voice of God, it's a voice of condemnation, it's a bully. So don't let memories bully you or hold you hostage. Don't let who you used to be and your worst moment and your bad days decide who God is and what God can do in the future. In the book of Philippians, the apostle Paul says, brothers, I don't consider that I've made this my own, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You say, Scott, he just said I should forget what's in the past. Yeah, when the past becomes a liability, forget it. When the past ceases to leave you with hope in the future, forget it. When the past is a bully that keeps you stuck and not entering into freedom, forget it. And when you believe your best days are in the past, you're right. If you think your best days are in the past, you're probably right. But if you think your best days are in the future, you're probably right too. Remember who God is and what he's done. Mike Cosper, who wrote a great book about Esther that I've been using in this series, says, Purim is a celebration that reminds us that no matter how dark things get, there is a reason for hope. And that's why remembering what God has done in the past gives us hope in the present. The second thing that I think that Purim teaches us is that we can reclaim our identity as God's people. 
we can reclaim our identity as God's people. Purim is a significant moment in the history of the Jews because before then they were born as a Jew into life in Israel, but now they're living in captivity and being a Jew switches from being something you're born into to something you choose. There's a quote here I want to share with you. It says, the fact is that in Persia, being a Jew for the first time in history became a matter of choice, a choice that had to be faced by every individual. It was only after the dispersal throughout Babylonia and Persia that an individual born as a Jew found himself in immediate, constant, and personal contact with other possible identities and had to choose for himself whether Jewishness would be something to maintain or something to hide. Yoram Hazoni said that. And that isn't just a story about the Jews. That's our story today. There was a period, an era in American history where to be an American was to be a Christian. It was just kind of assumed that didn't mean that you were actually growing in a thriving, vibrant relationship with God. It just meant that it was the cultural thing to do. That day is gone. And if it's not gone, it's, it's on its last legs. Cultural Christianity is out the door. And the Pew Research Group released a study in 2014 about the rise of the nuns. Now, I'm not talking about the singing nuns from Sister Act 2 with Whoopi Goldberg. This is the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. This is the percentage of each generation who claims no religious affiliation, atheistic, agnostic, or nothing at all. And it increases dramatically as you go from the generation that fought World War II up through millennials today. And you, you might look at this and go, Scott, that's super depressing. On one hand, yeah. But what it also means is that the, the benefits of being a Christian are going away so that the truth can endure. If you were being a Christian because it was popular or got you elected to public office or helped your business in the community, it is no longer those things. And so you have to follow Jesus for the right reasons now. You're not just born into Christianity, you have to choose it. Because none of us can be born into a relationship with God as we're gonna celebrate today in baptism. It has to be something that you embrace yourself. And if you're here today and you go, Scott, yeah, that's great for you because you're up in a Christian home and that's not my story. There's, I'm too far gone. That's the story of Esther. That's the story of Esther. No one knew she was a Jew for her whole life into adulthood. She compromised all along the way. And then she stood up one day and said, I'm going to reclaim my identity as God's people. Her uncle did the same. And from history, we see that thousands more did too. And it's a reminder that none of us has gone too far to be written out of God's story. None of us has gone so far to be written out of God's story. And so some of you are here today and you've never been baptized. And when I conclude this message in a few minutes, we're going to give you an opportunity to come forward and pray and surrender your life to Jesus Christ, identify with him and be baptized. Some of you have been putting off baptism because you're too scared to be on the stage. Well, guess what? You're not on stage today. You're outside. So excuse, gone. <laughs> no one is too far to stand up and go, I'm going to take my place in God's family and I'm going to allow him to write me into a story. And then number three, we must recover our calling and purpose in the present moment. We must recover our calling and purpose in the present moment. What happens with Esther and Daniel is that they are both taking the opportunity to go, I'm going to follow God even when it's difficult and unpopular. 
And I'm going to embrace God's calling in the moment that I'm in, not when I planned on being, and neither one of them planned on being in exile. And yet they were. And so that's what this whole series has been about, this series about being faithful to Christ and winsome to culture, because we're in a, a season where either one of these is an option that some people are doing. There's some people who are just faithful to Christ, and as we said, they're Christianized jerks. And there's some on the other side that are just pursuing popularity with culture while they compromise their faith along the way. And we're saying, no, we're going to embrace both. We're going to be and Christians. Daniel's an incredible story if you, didn't, if you weren't here for the whole time. And what Daniel does is he is faithful to Christ every single time. He never compromises. And Esther is almost the exact opposite. She's compromised seven ways from Sunday. And then she stands up and says, God can still use me. I can still come home. And he does. And both of these books give us incredible hope because we're called to be hopeful. I told you I have a love-hate relationship with Time Hop. I also have a love-hate relationship with Facebook. Because the people that I know are in church on Sunday morning today singing about hope, tomorrow are on Facebook slinging the exact opposite of hope. Some of the least hopeful voices I know on Facebook are people who, if you went in their bio, it's all about Jesus and Jesus and Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're struggling with hope, I would challenge you that maybe your focus has shifted from Jesus to Fox News or CNN, or MSNBC, or wherever you get your news. And if you spend more time obsessing over what's happening in the White House or on Twitter than on Jesus, then no wonder your perspective is going to be shaped by that. See, we're called to be faithful. And what that means is that there's things in this book that are not popular today in our culture. They're just not. but we're not just called to hold on to truth and be faithful. We're also called to be winsome. And why is it that we always amen the faithful part and not the winsome part? Conservative Christianity has got to get to the place where we're just as passionate about being faithful to Christ as we are winsome to culture. And the reason why we did this series is that I believe that if I teach faithfulness, I'm going to get more amens than if I teach winsomeness. And maybe that's because we misunderstood winsomeness. Popularity is about people moving towards us and being like us. I'm not preaching popularity. I'm preaching winsomeness. Winsomeness is about people moving towards Jesus and falling in love with Jesus because they find something in our lives that's attractive and compelling. And it's not enough to hold on to biblical truth. We have to actually be engaged with people who don't know Jesus and them not be repelled by our attitude. No one will want to be like somebody who's arrogant and proud. Those folks don't get invited to dinner at my house because I don't want them around. Who wants to be around somebody who's arrogant and proud for three hours, much less pay for their food? And so if you're not a follower of Jesus and you meet somebody who is winsome, who's loving and engaging and humble, who wants to be around you when you're on your good days and your bad days, somebody who offers you grace and mercy in a culture where as soon as somebody tweets the wrong thing, they're dead to us. That's winsome. And the people who were most unlike Jesus liked him the most. May it be so with us that the people who are most unlike us want to be around us. Why? So we can be popular? No. So they can fall in love with Jesus. 
And as we remember who God is and what he's done in the past, I believe that's going to keep us hopeful in the present. So before we go out and do baptism, I want to talk about a couple things we can do to put prayer into practice. On the back of your handout. The first one is I want to challenge you to begin a new tradition. Begin a new tradition. And this is where kids, I want you to be involved with your parents. I want you as a family to sit down this week and think about what could you do as a family to remember what God has done in the life of your family. I know families that celebrate gotcha day. It's the day they adopted their kids. They became theirs. I know families that celebrate their kids' spiritual birthdays. I know in our family, we, we celebrate come home from NICU day. It was the day our kids came home from weeks in NICU. But begin a new tradition and figure out what that's going to look like as a family. Figure out how you can celebrate either on a daily basis, a weekly basis, a monthly basis, a yearly basis. What is a tradition that you could inaugurate like Purim in your family or in your life that would remind you of who God is and what he's done? And then number two, invite friends to celebrate with you. Because every party is bigger, is better when it's bigger. If you go to a restaurant and somebody's sitting at a table and you go, what are you doing? Um, you know, it's my birthday. And you're by yourself? Not a good party. So invite friends to celebrate with you. Maybe that could be a dinner or a party or something out, but invite them to celebrate with you. And maybe even bring people in who can hear the story. I know you have kids in them, so I'm saying this to parents. Parents, if your kids are of a reasonable age and they don't know the story of how God has worked in your life or your family, you're doing them a disservice. I meet so many college students and young adults who don't know their parents' testimonies, and I know them. And I tell them about things that happened in their parents' life, and they go, they never told me that. If your kids don't know your good days and your bad days and how God has been faithful and who he's been in those to you to bring you to today, then they can't have hope in their present because they don't know your story. And then finally, number three, meet a friend for coffee or a meal in August because July is virtually over and invite their accountability to live faithful to Christ and win some to culture. Because I believe that accountability is best when invited, not imposed. So what if you met a friend and said, hey, if you see me online and I'm acting in a way that is not winsome, call me on it. I had a friend this week who was on Facebook and he was being stupid. And, um, and I called him on it. I just said, dude, you're posting out of emotion. That isn't what you really think. I, he goes, you know what? You're right. I, I was really fired up about that. I said, well, isn't this, isn't this really true? And he goes, yeah, that really is the truth. You know what he did? He edited his post. To you, that may be a big, a big deal. But I needed courage to tell him that because he could have said, dude, but you know, he told me years ago, he said, Scott, I want you to hold me accountable. And many times we just scroll through and roll our eyes at somebody else's post. That's a follower of Jesus that we know instead of holding him accountable. And I'm waiting for the day when he tells me, because I have time hop and I know the dumb things I've said in the past that nobody called me on. And I'm hoping he has the same thing for me. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.